smart politics for stupid times. Welcome to the Unprecedented Podcast with John Aravosis and Cliff Schechter. Hey guys, welcome back to the podcast. This is your co-host Cliff Schechter here along with the other guy I co-host with, John Aravosis. Hey John. Hello. We are also very lucky to have a returning champion. We have Julian Zelizer back. Julian is a brilliant historian, the Malcolm Stevenson Forbes Class of 1941 Professor of History and Public Affairs at Princeton University. He's a CNN political analyst and writes, uh, you've maybe seen his pieces at CNN.com, author of numerous books. And the reason we have him on today is he has a new and very important book, if we're going to understand the times that we're in, called Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich, The Fall of a Speaker, and the Rise of the New Republican Party. Welcome to the show, Julian. Thanks for having me back. You're welcome. And now, of course, we have to go straight to an ad because that's that's what we do these days. So that's our new we're going to run to a quick <laughs> ad, folks, and then we will talk to our, our brilliant historian friend. Okay, folks, quick word from Omaha Steaks. Uh, The sizzle of a delicious offering from Omaha Steaks on the grill is your official soundtrack to the summer. Omaha Steaks offers a variety of options that everyone loves. Steak, seafood, chicken, pork, burgers, easy-to-make meals, desserts, and more. Right now, Omaha Steaks is offering a limited-time deal. Go to omahasteaks.com, enter the code LIBERAL into the search bar, and order the the Grand Summer Grill Out Package, Today, order this package and Omaha Steaks will throw in four free burgers and four free gourmet jumbo franks, which, by the way, I've tasted and can't believe they're the most delicious hot dogs I've ever had. Um, Every order is flash frozen, vacuum sealed and safely delivered to your door in a cooler with dry ice, which my dog really enjoyed the dry ice. I mean, I didn't let her touch it. I just let it boil. I let it boil. People are going to say you gave your dog dry ice. I let it boil in the sink. It was fun. Omaha Steaks isn't just steak. It's a culinary masterclass, 100 years of family tradition, exclusive premium beef, aged to peak tenderness, and guaranteed perfection in every bite. Go to omahasteaks.com, type in liberal in the search bar, and order the Grand Summer Grill Out Package. You'll receive four free burgers and four free Jumbo Franks. Fill your freezer with enough gourmet food to keep your grill fried up all summer long with Omaha Steaks. OmahaSteaks.com, enter code LIBERAL. There we go. Okay, yeah. we're back with Julian. And I think just to tell folks, what we were really interested in, Julian has his new book about Newt Gingrich. Wait, what was the name again, Julian? Burning Down the House. Burning Down the House. I yeah. love that. Newt Gingrich, the fall of a speaker and the rise of the new Republican Party. Well, and I think what, what we're hope what our plan for today was to have Julian, especially because uh, the, getting into sort of the whole issue of the the origins of Trumpism and the Trump era, and yep. to what degree, which I think a lot of people have been arguing, you know, this isn't just some aberration that happened three years ago. We've been building towards this in the Republican Party yep. towards Trump, um, and and watching yeah. institutions burned down and taken apart and ignored, and and New Gingrich is an important part of that legacy, of course, and. Um, I mean, do you want to ask the first question when you go? Or I've, I'm so, I can geek out on this book forever. So, you know. I mean, uh, I don't know whether it's the question that's too much of an Uber question, but how did Ingrich help lead us to Trump? Well, uh, when you look back at Gingrich, he starts uh, in Congress in 1979. And in the early 1980s, he's seen as this real maverick, uh, a kind of bomb-throwing Republican. And, and basically, his argument was Republicans were far too timid, and they had to be willing to do just about anything uh, to achieve partisan power in the House, where they hadn't controlled 
the House since 1954, and he was willing uh, to dismantle institutions. He was willing to take normal procedures that most members didn't think of as as fodder for partisan warfare. He was willing to go into character assassination in McCarthyite ways. And and he does all of this in the 1980s. He uses the media. He, he brings down the Speaker of the House. But the story is this new style, which first is seen as like, this is too toxic for Washington, by the end of my story in 1989, the Republicans have put this guy in a leadership position and he's on the path to becoming the speaker. So so he uh, there's many people who are partisan, but he promotes this smash mouth, burn down the house kind of partisanship uh, that places partisanship above governance at every turn that I think we still live with today. You go first. Yeah. My one thing I wanted to say was I was just thinking I wanted people to know why we were going to talk about this so they didn't just think it was a history lesson about some guy that maybe some of them have never heard of if they're younger than us. But maybe now that we've said why Gingrich matters, tell us who this guy was. So if people say, Newt Gingrich, I'm not familiar with that. That's from 20 years ago. Who is that? Yeah, I mean, uh, Gingrich is this guy who comes from a, definitely a difficult background. His his biological father left his mother while she was pregnant with him. He grows up as an army brat. Uh, she remarries to the stepfather to his stepfather, who who's very caring of him, but not a particularly warm person. Uh, and and he spends his life moving around all the time. He goes to Emory uh, University. He marries his high school math teacher. Uh, he eventually gets a PhD <laughs> at Tulane in history. And he, he works as a historian just for a spell in West Georgia College. Uh, but quickly, he wants to get into politics. So this guy runs in the South where Democrats ruled the roost. In 1974, he loses <laughs> against the incumbent. 76, he loses again. And it's in 1978 when the incumbent retires that he finally wins the seat. And and so he's just a member of Congress. He's one of the young Republicans finally winning in the South. Uh, and then in the 80s, that's when he starts to shake up Washington and, and really introduce a lot of the Republican playbook that people see today and often associate with President Trump. But I'm trying to show this, this is deeply embedded in the DNA of the GOP. So the question I was going to ask, Julian, from just history – you know, we, we've had various right wing movements um, that have been, you know, either outside of the mainstream extreme, you know, we could. And, and the question is, you know, where to peg that beginning. So I agree with you. I've said a lot in the past and, and about Gingrich, because you can see the Gingrich DNA and so much of what they do today. But what would you say to some folks who might say, you know, that there are elements of this in the Reagan coalition, someone like Jesse Helms, who polarized much of the Senate or, you know, in the Goldwater campaign that rejected the kind of mainstream republicanism in 64 or the McCarthyism or anti-New Deal like the American Liberty League. You know, we could name a lot of these. Is, is there something to you that that makes the, that the, the Gingrich moment unique beyond those other moments in, in getting us to where we are? There is. I mean, I think when you talk about what happened to the Republican Party ideologically in terms of how how did this extremism take hold? Uh, ideologically, I do think it, it. you go back to the Goldwater campaign of 64 and you look at the right wing networks that had emerged and, and you see a lot of the origins of what today has become commonplace in the Republican Party. 
But what Gingrich is interesting, he he's more strategic, really, than ideological. And I think he, more than any of the other Republicans of that period, even a Jesse Helms, he's really uh, strategic and thoughtful uh, in a in a destructive way about right. how he's going to pursue power for the Republican Party. And, and so it's about the methods you use to achieve power. So when I see Senator McConnell refuse uh, a few years ago to allow uh, President Obama's Supreme Court pick to even get meetings with members of the Senate, for me, that kind of dates back to, to the way Gingrich said the politics had to be played on Capitol Hill. So so they're all part, a historian can say there's lots of origins, but Gingrich is really the person uh, who does that strategic move that I think has held pretty tightly in the party. No, I mean, that it's an important point. So it was more the sort of, it's not, it's not just the ideas, because I, I think a lot of these ideas, I mean, Goldwater obviously was trounced. And a lot of these ideas maybe existed. Pat Buchanan in the Reagan administration, obviously, I didn't even talk about Nixon's period of time. But but maybe, you know, these moments, these these guys had moments of power, but were kind of not constantly on the inside. Whereas the fact that Gingrich was granted such an important position and led, you know, fully a large, um, not the legislative branch, but one of the two parts of it, is that kind of, you know, and, and did it strategically. That's kind of where he takes them much further than sort of a Robert Welch yelling out there. Is that kind that, of the... That, that's exactly right. And, and for the listeners who don't remember, in 1994, when Republicans finally take over Congress, Gingrich will become the Speaker of the House. So we're talking not about a marginal player. We're talking about the moment when Republicans took someone who was on the margins, who in other eras they might have pushed aside and said, well, this time you're going to be one of the leaders. And even moderates like Olympia Snow voted to make him the House Minority Whip, which is his first leadership position. And they, they make a pragmatic decision. They say, well, we don't have a, a much of a taste for the way he does his politics, but boy, this guy might be the way we finally win some power. Uh, so you're talking about an insider. And that sounds uh, very familiar, by the way, to a certain guy right now. No, it's exactly. I mean, that's literally in the story. Uh, and, and I wrote that section before Trump was even running for president. Uh, it, it's this moment when he's in the middle of bringing down the Speaker of the House, this guy, Jim Wright. And, and it looks like it's going to happen. Uh, and he's doing it through kind of whipping up a frenzy over a scandal in the media. And the Republicans have to vote on a new uh, minority whip, which is a kind of uh, important leadership position. And there's a competition between Gingrich, who's like a McCarthy of the 1980s, and a moderate middle-of-the-road guy from Illinois, Ed Madigan. Hmm. And the Republicans pick Gingrich, and it's a shocker. But Olympia Snow is one of the key votes. Uh, wow. and, and she explains it again, that we, we need to do something to shake hmm. up the system. Bet she regrets hmm. that one. Yeah. <laughs> if she hadn't, I don't know if he would have won that position. That's incredible. Kind of reminds me of Sandra Day O'Connor in the 2000 election. I often wonder if yeah. she looked back. But in any case, um, so so Gingrich builds this kind of power, right? Tell, talk to us about sort of some of the institutional decline that obviously has led to – I mean, look, there's a weakening of the Republican Party. The Tea Party eventually is able to rise – in a way that it wouldn't have been with, you know, in the past, at least when there are a lot of Jeffords, Chafees, you know, folks of that of that ilk of the party there. So in, it maybe talk to us in more sort of a day to day. What does Gingrich do 
that weakens the kind of guardrails, the institutions that keep the Republican Party from being taken over by extremists back then? Well, like one thing he, he does is the language he uses uh, in Washington is pretty explosive in talking about Democrats. He, he literally circulates a memo where uh, he's telling other Republicans, if you want to speak like Newt, use words to describe Democrats like sick, traitorous, uh, treason, you know, uh, really blistering words. And yeah. uh, he also constantly is trying to create moments of confrontation on television. He says the media loves confrontation and that's what you have to give them. Uh, and the way he does that confrontation is, is through these high profile showdowns where he presents the Democrats as being this autocratic, tyrannical party that's just destroying everything. Um, and he uses cable television. This is really one of his tools uh, to, to do that. And, and he keeps taking steps where everyone, even some Republicans, are saying, there's no way we're going to be talking with each other when this is all done. This is just too blistering. But he doesn't care. He says, you have to be aggressive. You have to be that cutthroat because uh, that's how, how this is going to work. And, and he takes down the Speaker of the House for really kind of small things that he had done, which which didn't break any ethical laws and, and didn't break any uh, regular laws. But he is able to create an image that the Speaker of the House is essentially a criminal uh, and put so much pressure on him that the Speaker resigns. And, and those are the kinds of tactics we see all the time from Gingrich, which obviously resonate today. Do you think... Uh, oh, go ahead, John. No, go ahead. No, no. Well, I guess it's funny because I think... You know, as much as people, people are always kind of reminding us that Trump isn't necessarily new, but in some ways, I mean, I don't know. It's it's interesting for me trying to tie him back to what came before when he wasn't the party's choice, when he was an outlier, when he was the guy who wasn't supposed to win. So that, I mean, in some ways he was, very, well, it's funny. It's the first time in his life he was a self-made man. <laughs> Ironically, I never thought about it that way. But, you know, everything else was handed to him. This one he actually fought for and won the presidency when nobody was willing to help him. Um, but but I guess maybe whether it was just uh, intuitively he understood, you know, sort of a lot of the same things Gingrich had understood and had built. You know what I mean? Because he clearly I wasn't did. a student of Gingrich. I mean, Trump didn't know his political history. He didn't. I mean, but I, two things. I. Uh, he did speak with uh, Gingrich a lot, uh, and Gingrich is oh, one that's of interesting. his potential vice presidential picks. He was down to the final three, uh, and and so he was in the orbit. Kellyanne Conway, incidentally, was Ugh. Gingrich's advisor in 2012 when he ran for president, uh, and so there's a totally connect uh, direct thread. Gingrich has written five books on Trump since he's president. Uh, hmm. And is one of the spokesmen on Fox. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Actual books came out this like, week. Are these pamphlets it, that like he calls uh, books? That's exactly right. So, so there there are direct <laughs> connections, but but what what Trump's instinct? It, it's not that hard. All he saw he saw the Republican Party as it is today, uh, and and you know it's it's not that he had to remake it. The the, the question is why did the Republican Party? create space for someone like Donald Trump rather than how did Donald Trump win over the Republican Party. And if you've been studying the GOP in the 80s with Gingrich, the Tea Party during uh, Obama's years and, and Fox television, which is evolving throughout both of those periods, you see exactly what the foundation was in 2016. And you see why 
when Trump instinctively just tried to figure out what am I supposed to do to win? These are the kinds of tactics he was drawn to. He was in some ways being very rational. Uh, this is what the Republican Party has become. No, I mean, and I think we've seen that. We, we're still seeing it, right? I mean, we just saw somebody who is literally a incredibly right-wing congressman and Scott Tipton lose a primary in Colorado to a woman who owns an open carry cafe. I'm not kidding. That's a thing. Open carry cafe. <laughs> an open carry cafe where they were, where she got fined because they refused to, to shut down and put on masks, or whatever in rifle Colorado, which apparently is also a thing. Um, you know, in Virginia, they tossed out, they have a, 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 what do you call it? They have a convention there. I guess they did it virtually, or maybe they did it without masks, knowing them, but they tossed out an incumbent, very conservative Republican for, again, a, a Q type nut. You know, I mean, we, we, we see where they are. And, and the thing that about, you know, and uh, here's where I'll go with this. The thing is when people say, oh, well, it's just Trump, it's just Trump. I mean, people forget Ted Cruz came in second with a pretty healthy margin. And do people not think he's every bit the con man that Donald Trump is? I mean, he's the same same kind of picking fights on Twitter. He may know a little bit better how to get along with, quote unquote, establishment Republicans, but everybody hates him. He's a guy who picks fights and is irresponsible in his rhetoric and what he does, right wing and and transactional to the core. And he came in second. So when you combine his vote and you know, the Cruz Trump vote, like there was over 50 percent, if I remember correctly. I mean, yeah. I think you're absolutely right. And, and Cruz is someone who survived in the landscape of, of Fox television and has been, you know, more than willing to let out uh, pretty um, out there rhetoric uh, about the Democrats and about progressives and liberals. So he's more refined and uh, more conventional in, in how he acts to some extent. Uh, but they're really not that far apart. And and that when I studied Gingrich, actually, it, it's related directly to that. I went in to write the book kind of expecting to tell the story of how does this totally uh, out of the box, radical Republican somehow seize power in the GOP and force the GOP to let him in. But what I found is the Republican leaders basically were willing to open the doors to him. They They said they didn't like him. They said, you know, he didn't do things the right way. But the Republican leaders in Congress, a guy named Bob Michael, who is the House Minority Leader, George H.W. Bush, who in 1988, in the middle of my story, is running a blistering campaign against Michael Dukakis, advised by this guy, Lee Atwater, who was a kindred spirit mm -hmm. to Gingrich. The right. leaders of the party, they back in the 80s, they're making deals with this style of politics. So uh, this whole idea that the establishment's kind of holding this all back right through today I think is just based on a totally um, nostalgic or mythological uh, view of, of what the Republican leaders are about. Yeah. I mean, if you look at it, you know, with the, I remember, I mean, if this is correct, what I read, you know, about it, George H.W. Bush, you know, they had kind of had the, the they, they tried to separate the two. They tried to make it, uh, which eventually you can't do, right? At least George H.W. was sort of, you, he can, you can campaign in a little bit of a dirty way, but then there's the, you win and you govern you know, in a more responsible way. Um, and, and it seems to me that what they didn't realize is that, especially when you've got leaders like Gingrich, is eventually those guys start actually running for office. They're not just happy being consultants or, you know, talk radio hosts. I mean, Mike Pence was a talk radio host, for example. Donald Trump was a reality star. You know, the, the yeah. people that you sort of love having them screaming on the outside, 
you know, and, and like, well, once we get in there, you know, it's serious governing. The problem is, is that it isn't. Any, I mean, hell, George W. Bush was a campaign consultant for George Bush, right? Yeah. I mean, so that to me feels like a lot of this, the story is that the people who they kind of, you know, they, they kind of were, would keep at arm's length and say, all right, these are the crazies. We've got to rile them up to raise small donations and to get them to, to get them to turn out and and support us and this and that but that became especially as media the, the media influence grew of fox and the rest though that became the mainstream and those guys started running for office right i mean no that's that's exactly right i mean i think it's it's partly a idea that they would be able to contain them eventually or the idea that ultimately we're going to put this kind of politics aside when it comes to governing but you're letting people into the leadership like gingrich or eventually like the freedom caucus who really aren't going to prioritize governing at all, uh, and they're willing to just put it by the wayside uh, in in this new form of partisanship, and and so um, they bear responsibility. And that 1988 campaign was really something to look back on. And uh, you know the Lee Atwater story, which which some people probably know, that he releases these blistering ads about Dukakis and plays on white backlash politics. Um, with regard yep. to criminal justice issues, it's really it's it's as low ball as it gets. Um, and and uh, what I didn't un- know before I wrote the book was that part of what he does is he brings this uh, whole story about Jim Wright, the Speaker of the House, the scandal that Gingrich is using to obtain power. He brings it into the campaign. He starts talking about it on the campaign trail. And this is shocking because George H.W. Bush is friends with Jim Wright. They're from Texas. And yep. he's seen as someone who's above this kind of politics. Hmm. But there's this idea, well, you can just do it for a little bit and you can bring them in a little bit and eventually it will stop or will contain them. But that's just not what happened. They became the bosses. They became the establishment. And that's what we're living with today. All right. And Cliff, do you want to – I mean to interrupt, but we no, need I to do a quick ad from Plexiderm. Yeah, we're a little behind. Say, after the ad, I'd like to come back to this because another guy who was in that George H.W. Bush ca- uh, campaign, Roger Ailes – um, also took that kind of mentality and mainstreamed it, but uh, we'll, we'll get to that. Okay. Um, hey guys, <laughs> you know what I hate? <laughs> hey, <Cliff. laughs> when your social media pops up with a summer vacation pic from five years ago, and those are great memories, except for the wrinkles and bags around my eyes now. Delete. This is interesting. Not this summer. No more pop-up pics with me with deep wrinkles, fine lines, and bags under my eyes. And nope, I didn't get nope, I didn't get surgery. I got plexiderm. Plexiderm is clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, and under eye bags, all in the comfort of your home in minutes. Plexiderm goes on clear, lasts for hours, so nobody will know your secret. I tr- I have not yet tried it, but if I do, I will probably look like Julian and John Aravosis, 10 years younger. Uh, the results will blow you away. <laughs> um, uh, go try Plexiderm, and to do that, you go to tryplexiderm.com, use the code VOICES for half off a full-size bottle, uh, of Plexiderm plus an additional $10 off. So it's half off an additional 10 or try a 1495 trial pack today by calling 1-800-685-1292. That is 1-800-685-1292. Again, mention the code voices. Again, visit tryplexiderm.com. Use the code voices for half off a full-size bottle plus an additional $10 off or the 1495 trial pack. When you use the code voices at 800-685-1292. And the guy who probably should have used Plexiderm back then, Roger Isles, um, <laughs> and many other things that would have helped him. I mean, didn't he play? I mean, didn't he actually produce the Willie Horton ad, if I'm correct? Julian? Yeah, he, 
Go ahead. He was one of the advisors for that, uh, for a lot of the campaign in 1988. And Bush regularly was consulting him uh, for what Lee, I mean, Lee Atwater's the mastermind, uh, but Ailes is an, another big player in the circles. I mean, George H.W. Bush surrounded himself very tightly with the kind of people he claimed to have, you know, nothing to do with, but they were right there at the center of it. Right. And I mean, the reason I was trying to make that point is it's kind of like what we were saying before, which is, you know, when you think you can separate the governing from the campaigning, you know, because you end up making Newt Gingrich a leader, a a completely irresponsible guy, immoral guy who will do whatever it takes to, to gain power. But also, what does Roger Ailes go and do? He goes and starts a television station that essentially the entertainment wing of your party with Rupert Murdoch's money, I mean, first he did, uh, I guess, MSNBC, but eventually gets all over to Fox. And the whole point of this is so that now you've got constant pressure on you that if you deviate from the most right-wing demagogic, let's entertaining kind of garbage, you're, you're pilloried. And so that also sort of forces you to, to behave in a Gingrichian kind of way, right? Yeah, and I mean, what's interesting about the Yale's uh, story too and, and his role all of these guys really understood that television was going to be a key battlefield, uh, and they all prioritized that in way a lot in ways a lot of Democrats were not doing yet, and they believed that this elevation of of partisan politics over governance and this style of partisanship not all partisanship's the same. This is really a partisanship on steroids in a, in a destructive way that television was going to be the way to do this, that it, it had to be crafted for television. A lot of the, the partisan battles had to be theatric at some level. They had to be made for reporters right. to uh, you know get their eyeballs there and Powerful the language imagery. that you use. Yeah. yeah and the, even the language you use had to be television friendly and Atwater Ailes, Gingrich, all of them were on the same page as that. And I think that's that's also really interesting, given where the party went and given the role of Fox television in the modern GOP. And of course, Gingrich, once he left, uh, was chased out shockingly, shockingly uh, for being an immoral person himself and having numerous scandals, losing seats uh, after they tried to impeach Bill Clinton or impeached but didn't convict. Um, then where does he end up? Of course, a contributor at Fox, right? It's almost like perfect. Yeah, and I would just add to that. I mean, one of the most remarkable parts of Gingrich is his whole career, he has scandals that totally go against everything he's fighting for. So for since the 80s, it was known and there were stories about his affairs and, and his various sexual escapades, even as he's positioning himself as the you know legislative foot soldier of the Republican Revolution, as he's trying to take down Jim Wright uh, in 1989 for this scandal that revolved around Jim Wright selling books in bulk, uh, you know, to interest groups, he is also doing unethical things uh, in terms of how he sold his books. His whole career is like that, and right? Because with Bill Clinton too. It's the same, same thing. I don't mean to cut you off, but it's the same exact thing. Like literally the thing he's accusing Clinton of, he's privately doing. And it says a lot about the depth of how much he cares about the actual ethical issues. All these were were partisan bludgeons that he saw he could use very effectively. Uh, but I think that inconsistency, that hypocrisy really revealed he didn't care very deeply about the actual issues. Right. Do you see 
I'm not trying to, if you want to jump in at some point, John, but I've, I've, I've keep okay. things keep popping in that are important to me. Do you see also not just the sort of culture of, of, of sort of political smash mouth politics, you know, and, and the fact that we don't care about comedy, you know, uh, C O M I T Y. We don't care about, uh, you know, the, the governing process. We care about power. Clearly that comes straight from Gingrich, some others too, but Gingrich seems to be the, patient zero in a way. Do you also see this culture of what we see now so much of, of like the literal shamelessness of almost because Gingrich in what we, as we just talked about would be doing the exact thing, same things he was accusing others of. Do you think it sort of encouraged others out there who sort of were like, yeah, wait, look at that. I can rise to power, do whatever I feel like. And I just have to accuse the other people of the same things I'm doing. So in a way, the more sort of, of who was in politics recedes and you get these 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 numerous con men you know you get the ted cruz types right you get these types who just will say one thing do another have no shame no does, does that make any sense what i'm saying yeah there? i mean look look the political leaders some political leaders are leaders because they inspire or because they put forth ideas or that, that last or create coalitions that are enduring. Other people are leaders in a different way. They lower the bar of what's permissible in politics. And, and when they do that, it also sticks. And I think that is part of what happened. I think you see a lowering of the bar in terms of what's permissible politically, a lowering of the bar in terms of how you have to act relative to your principles that you're espousing, a lowering of the bar in terms of what you can do to the government uh, in, in pursuit of power. And, and Gingrich is certainly crucial in a lot of this. And I, I think you see that and, and it keeps getting worse. I think that could be an effect of the Trump presidency is that a lot of what he's done, other politicians say, well, I guess you can do that. I guess you can kind of get away with it uh, and be president mm-hmm. of the United States. I don't think that goes away very easily. Right. Well, we've seen it with his cabinet. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's, been, that's been one of my that's been one of my biggest fears that I've been talking about is I think, you know, we'll stop, we talk about the Overton window so much, but Trump has done things that are so outrageous and so shocking and gotten away with it. And, you know, had the virus not hit the guy, he still could get reelected, but he would have had a much better chance of getting reelected if we didn't have the virus. It's it, I worry about we talk Cliff and I have mentioned this before a lot on the show. Actually, we talk about. What happens when the smarter Donald Trump runs for election? You know, the one who is just as populist, but in a bad way, or toxic populism, I think Jared Yates said. The Tom Cotton Liz Cheney ticket of 2024, you mean? Right, right, but exactly. Well, but, and they're, but the thing right. is, they're willing to be... Now, the thing is, I don't know whether they would be willing to be as corrupt as Trump. They would be as evil, but they might not be as corrupt. But you get somebody who's as corrupt as Trump, but smart enough to keep his mouth shut. You know, and not be doing all the crazy ass stuff he does on Twitter and everything else, but still corrupt as hell, still populist as hell, still willing to embrace violence, you know, all this kind of stuff. And now Trump has really shown that there's no price to pay. I mean, you might lose an election, but again, that might just be because Trump dropped the ball on the coronavirus, not because he's evil <laughs> or corrupt, just because yeah. he screwed up one time too many and people are paying a price. And what well, happens next th- time? I mean, there's a million moments in the Trump presidency like that. You you start the whole presidency with basically his refusal to actually separate his massive business <laughs> right. uh, from his presidential administration. And many people, and including myself, thought you, you can't do that. Like that's not gonna be sustainable. 
but it has been. And and not only has he sustained it, but he's just you know been very open about it with his trips to the Trump properties and uh, all the different connections between public pol- foreign policy and 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 his own interests. But it's easy to imagine that has lowered the bar. Presidents won't be that worried about those kinds of conflicts. And like you said, others will be smart enough to be more quiet uh, about this kind of activity. And and it's now permissible. Look, he just tweeted a white power, someone saying white power on yeah. a presidential Twitter feed. Uh, so people are paying attention. And, and when it comes time for the next Republican president to get pretty tough with the opponents, that won't be forgotten. And it won't be forgotten that, yeah, he got criticism and sure, he's in a bad position, but it's not clear that tweet is what brought him down. So he got away with it. Let me ask you this. Do you think, so, okay, we, we've got Trump who's sort of these Gingrichian tactics, even much worse, you could argue. I mean, although it's hard to even, <laughs> it's hard to decide what, you know, because I don't know how, how different Gingrich would be if he were in that seat. Maybe he wouldn't tweet as stupidly, but would, but certainly would, would be as bad. But do you think – what's the role that you think – because we've talked Gingrich, we've talked Trump. We, I, I even went back and mentioned some folks in the Reagan administration and Goldwater and McCarthy and this and that. What, the, what role do you see of Mitch McConnell in all of this? Did he learn from Newt Gingrich? Did, you know, did he pioneer as much as Newt Gingrich? Uh, he, for sure. He's, I, I think he's an extraordinarily important figure right now. He's the base in many ways of of President Trump, more than the the voters we keep talking about, uh, because he makes sure that Congress will protect the administration. And look, there's two parts to the Gingrich legacy. One is just this rhetorical, blistering rage that you're allowed to throw out there about your opponents. and, and, And that connection with President Trump is clear. But the other is this acceptance of institutional decay. Uh, as as you uh, kind of maintain your power. And that's Mitch McConnell in a nutshell. He's willing to do absolutely anything, anything to preserve Republican power in, in the Senate. And we talked about the Merrick Garland uh, nomination, which was never moved at all. And we see this all the time. I mean, you know, McConnell's willing to threaten government shutdowns. He's willing to really put anything on the table uh, to to keep the Republicans at the top there. So, so I think both are, I, I mean, everyone's obviously picking up with my book, the Trump part, but I think McConnell is a product of Gingrich congressional politics. Very, very clearly. Um, what do I want to ask? There's so many things I want to ask. Um, go ahead, John. Well, no, I was going to, I mean, this is just sort of a personal point, but I'm curious since you obviously have delved into all things Gingrich, um, You've done a lot of TV, as Cliff and I have. And one thing I've always enjoyed with TV is talking to the drivers who pick you up and drive you to the uh, TV station. And for those folks who don't know, the reason they do it, I remember the first time I was offered, I was like, I don't need a driver. I'll, I'll take a you know, cab or I'll, whatever. And they were like, no, 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 no. We do it to I make sure you I actually get in the car, by the way. But go ahead. Yeah, there you go. Well, no, but they said we do it to make sure you get there. Like, that's why we have a driver. <laughs> and I was we like, all right, you. fair enough. Fair enough. You know, it's live TV. But the drivers, I would always ask them about, you know, different people and whatever, who was their best, who were their worst customers, whatever. And I got to tell you, a lot of times they would tell me that, you know, some of the worst Republicans you've ever heard of, uh, Pat Buchanan, Newt Gingrich, were some of the nicest people. And I mean, basically, you know, 
dealing with kind of a blue collar worker and just being wonderful. Can I say just quickly, John, I don't want to yeah. interrupt you, but yeah. I just find it hilarious you picked those two figures because I met both those guys in the in green rooms. Right. And they were incredibly nice people to me. That, well, that was that was my <laughs> their clip. politics that was, were terrible, you know, and it, it made me sick what they did. But in a green room, they both were actually really nice guys. And I and there's a bunch of Republicans I could I could say that that was not yes. true. About. The ahead. nicest guy I met in a green room, and the green room is the room you kind of wait in after you get your makeup done before you go on TV. The nicest guy I ever met was Newt Gingrich, and I was coming off O'Reilly like ten plus years ago, and he goes. Who are you? You were really good. And I was like, well, thank you, Mr. Speaker. And he five minutes of him questioning me about who I am. It was and he was just nice. And it was, but what what I find interesting is, I mean, and, and having said that, you know, Ted Kennedy was one of the rudest people I've ever met, except that I revealed Ted Kennedy. You should know, you should know Julian, that John worked back when John was a Republican, worked for Ted Stevens on the Hill. Yeah, it was known for something you could call a semi-explosive temper, let's just say. He was an asshole. Let's just call <laughs> that what it is. He was, no, he was, he was the he was meanest motherfucker to staff. I thought yeah. he was good center-right, res- respectable politics well, as he, a public. He was. Right? Yeah. He was. He was just right. an asshole, though, um, to staff. Right. Well, if you are a guy, he was an asshole, but whatever. Um, but, but no, but what interests me is I just I I have always been intrigued by this dichotomy between the public and private life of politicians. And I don't just mean, you know, Thomas Jefferson, founder of the country, slave owner, although that frankly could be part of the discussion, but that people like Gingrich <laughs> really were some of the nicest people in a way, as far as manners and dealing with people, yet they were some of the most evil people. And then you get Ted Kennedy on the other hand, who was kind of an asshole and bad with women as well, but was also really a hero in terms of he's did so many good things for people for being it kind of a bad guy. They weren't necessarily always connected, are they? Yeah. I mean, I think this is an old story, certainly in politics, uh, where the person doesn't always match up to what they do in public. And and those are the two ways you can have a very reactionary politician who is very pleasant when you meet them in a green room or right. meet them at a political event. And you could have a kind of heroic figure, whatever your ideology is, who personally is so distasteful kind of when you meet them. Yeah. Yeah. I think with Gingrich, though, and this is relevant in, in terms of his public persona, uh, it wasn't simply that he was aggressive and and uh, cutthroat, but he really destroyed people's reputations and and was willing to kind of promote a, this kind of character assassination. Yeah, which uh, that's part of the person too. Oh well, no, you uh, and, you see yeah. you see the things even now in the Trump era, you see the things Gingrich is saying, and right. he it's like listening to Donald Trump Jr., but somebody who speaks English a little better. Well. Here's what it's I would just, say. It's just vicious. John, and, and you know, and I've, yeah. I've come across this so many times. I mean, look, I live in Cincinnati, and my wife grew up on the west side of the city here, which is very conservative. And you're reminded, you hear of this in the south, too, which is you go places, and if they know you, they're terrific to you often. Nice to right. you. Right. But if you can be othered, if you're in the way of power, then you can be thrown into a group. And the point I'm trying to make here, more even with Pat Buchanan, who's a really nice guy to me in a in in a, in a green room which is amazing yeah. i could also see pat buchanan being a guy standing there as i'm being loaded onto a cattle car yeah Not exactly to you john yeah. and you yeah. julian for our various transgressions of being jewish yeah. and gay and and you know if he didn't know us and could other us he'd be like well yeah i mean i hate to say that but i, I it's yeah. true 
I think well, there's almost a hypo- I mean, as, as much as I'd like to find a humanity in people like that, in, in this sort of an anecdote, it's almost more a hypocrisy, I think, for a lot of them than, than humanity. Jesse Helms was another one who supposedly was just really great. Nice guy, you know, caring, blah, blah, blah. Except that, like he you said, he'd, be, you. he'd be very happy to see me into the train car. <laughs> yeah, I mean, guaranteed, you know. Um, actually, I've got to stop. We've got to do a really quick ad again, Julian, and then that's the last ad for the show, so then we won't be interrupted. But Cliff, okay. let me let me give us a quick word from the clean phone, and then we'll be right back. Uh, the dramatic rise in COVID-19 infections and hospitalizations is alarming. Half the states in the nation, including some of our largest, most populous states, have increased caseloads. California has already mandated wearing face masks when outdoors. And actually, I think Arizona governor just mandated it, which made me laugh. Texas did, um, yes. Oh, Texas. I'm sorry. Yeah, Texas, which I just find that hysterical. I mean, it's great, but it's hysterical. How do you keep yourself and your family safe? Beyond face masks, one of the biggest carriers of bacteria and virus is your cell phone. Gross, but true. But with the clean phone and its use of UVC light technology, the same technology used in hospitals to keep our first responders safe, you can sanitize your phone, earbuds, jewelry, credit cards, even car and house keys in minutes. In the case of Brad Parscale, that would be both of your sets of keys. What was it? Your Ferrari and your... Ferraris, your 14 houses, right. Yeah, he has like a a Range Rover (laughs) and a whatever. Um, uh, And it'll kill 99.9% of bacteria and viruses as well. Right now, the clean phone comes with free two-day shipping, and you can add KN95 face masks to your order as well. We all need to defend ourselves and our family against the increasing COVID infection rates. Go to the New Deal. I always hate this URL. It's a new URL. Go to thenewdealshop.com and purchase the clean phone now. Get one for your home and another for your office. Go to thenewdealshop.com and order the clean phone and stock up on KN95 masks too. Be prepared and stay well. Thenewdealshop.com. All right. Um, But yeah, so the Gingrich thing, I think in, like I said, in many ways it does not, I think some people, again, Jefferson, not to get into all of that, you obviously have a complicated history there. (laughs) This was not somebody who was solely a bad person. Gingrich's case and Pat Robertson, Pat Robertson, there's another one. But, you know, Gingrich's case, actually, let me ask you in that vein, what was the, because I, I keep hearing maybe it wasn't, maybe it was more apocryphal than true. What actually happened with Gingrich and his divorce papers with his wife being in the hospital with cancer? Yeah, so that came out in a story in Mother Jones in uh, 1984 that it, the original story basically implied he was almost serving her the papers. On the deathbed or something, the yeah. It, it turns out he they did it, it did happen and they talked divorce and they discussed the divorce, but it had been already in process. Uh, so it, it certainly doesn't make the story much better, um, but it was a little less uh, of what the original story was. But but that was a story that stuck. I mean, the fact he decided yeah. that uh, during her recovery is the time to discuss the divorce details says a lot about his character and, and maybe gives a little different side of him than what you experienced in the green room. And it's the kind of story that Newt Gingrich would use to destroy you if it were you. Of course. Well, I think the difference that says is that, and I, you know, I think it goes back to what we were talking about before, is John in the green room is not in Newt Gingrich's way. Like, oh, by the way, I, we were nice. wait, real quick. What? The, the other weird thing was, I mean, I was on O'Reilly talking about gay issues in the election as gay guy, gay Democrat. Right. That's what that was what was so but weird. That also to me shows is, me that it's demagoguery. He, he that's doesn't... what pisses me off. Yes. So, he, so it, I was a gay Democratic activist and he fucking loved me. But right. of course, he would have been the first person to take away my civil rights if he were back in office. That's my point is, is that so his wife even is in his way of what he wants, which is a different wife. Yeah. yeah. And it seems at that point. 
you cease to be human to him, or at least someone worthy of empathy, and you become a barrier. And barriers, like whether it's a wife or Jim Wright or anybody else, it doesn't. What you do to remove them is completely yep. acceptable in his world. And I would be remiss to add that you know, even though uh, there's many, many stories about Gingrich uh, being pretty difficult in person, and even many of his great admirers. Politically, uh, conservatives don't like him so much. Uh, he could be incredibly arrogant, incredibly uh, kind of self-involved, uh, and he could be very rough even with people he worked with. There were a million memos in his archives, not a million, but there were uh, there were memos where I literally found him writing apologies uh, to staffers for how nasty he had been. <laughs> Um, and he would usually explain he was on a diet. He was working late. There was some. Reason. I was on a diet. But, <laughs> but I, 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 I want to add that there's a lot of people who are not Gingrich fans at the personal level either, and actually admire him more yeah. in the way you were talking about Kennedy. That he's yeah. this visionary, uh, even though he's so difficult to be to get along with. <laughs> yeah. He'd be like, I, "Look, I was in yeah. a bad mood. I was courting my fourth wife. I was unjustly impeaching <laughs> yeah. a president." You know, yeah. that'll put you on edge. I can't. My help. wife right. is getting old, and you know, okay, right. what are you going to do? Um, yeah, it is fascinating. It's also been fascinating to see. Did you learn? I mean, because look, a number of of the folks that were around him at that time have remained important, important in various ways. You know, in Republican history and American history, I think of John Boehner, who yeah. ends up becoming Speaker, and they eventually were at odds. I think of Tom Delay. Uh, and who eventually, you know, in, in Dick Army, hell, Denny Hastert, who's serving time for molesting kids. Um, I also think of, uh, you know, here in Ohio, John Kasich, who originally yep. was an ally of his and was a much more of a budget conservative, you know, didn't deal as much in the social issues. Um, and now is a flat out a moderate who rumors are he may join the Republicans for Biden <laughs> effort. So, yep. I mean. You know, I mean, did you did you learn anything about any of those characters around him? If they were just as cynical as him, or if any of them were were principled people, or anything of that nature? Some were. I think it was a mix. I mean, I I do think there were principled conservatives. I think John Kasich was one of them. You know, kind of believed in this Midwestern small government Republican philosophy. He was taken by Gingrich, though, and he was certainly part of that era and and part of that team. So I don't think all Republicans in terms of their consistency were the same at all. Um, but but they all did sign on to what he was doing. And I think for me, that was the relevant kind of story and right. that uh, they didn't say no. And and John Boehner joined Gingrich in, in the many theatrical takedowns of the Democrats that were taking place and in saying this is a legitimate way to govern. And it wasn't a surprise to me when as speaker, he basically enters into an alliance with the Tea Party. And he also justifies it, I'll contain them, et cetera, et cetera. And he later, when he retires, says, boy, they were pretty bad. Uh, but but Boehner, you know, he was OK with this as well. So so despite all the diversity, they all said this is what our party's going to be now. And they're still in that place. Right. And I think, you know, again, I brought it up before, but you can't I, there's no way you can sit there and look at that and say that that didn't create the Jim Jordans, you know, right. and the Louis Gohmerts. And, you know, these other characters, these loons, these loudmouths, these these nasty sort of folks who've arrived there. And even if you see the way, I have to believe that what he led against Jim Wright 
that, and then eventually it gets Bill Clinton with a ridiculous impeachment over a private sexual affair and whatever people, I'm not going to get into all the history of Clinton. Did he, does it seem to me he committed perjury? Yes. It also seems to me that question never should have been asked, but that's for another time. Point being, his type of politics were constant scandal mongering so that the government, the business of government cannot go forward. I'm thinking Benghazi. I'm thinking fast and furious. I'm thinking about the types like, like uh, Daryl Issa, who rises up, you know, and 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 gains power in the Republican House. I'm thinking of oh, what's his name, that, that loudmouth jackass. Pardon my friends from from Utah, the one that rose up, the House member who then also took on was a uh, head of one of the committees, Shafitz, right? Oh, I mean, uh, yeah. they all learned from from Gingrich in a way, right? I mean, they were just doing what they'd seen Gingrich successfully do. No, that's exactly right. Uh, the the multiple generations that have come in since the 80s, but certainly that whole Tea Party class, uh, they did not invent this. Uh, and they they saw that their predecessors engaged in these kinds of politics. And not only do they not see a reason why not to do that, they believe that's what you do. And they believed right. it could be effective. They saw Gingrich. He did lead. A, I mean, he did lead the Republicans to take over the House. So it worked. Uh, and and I think they they have now come of age where this is the convention, this is the status quo for the GOP, and and I think all of those people are are really uh, not. He wasn't their mentor, but he certainly created the world and the ways uh, in which they operate. Yeah, I mean, I, I think so. I, so I'm going to ask you. I'm, I'm going to throw a curveball at you for that's something interesting. Um, I have pinpointed what I say on this show often. I probably bore John with it that I see mm. as the literal moment where the downfall of the Republican Party became inexorable. That it literally um, that there there was there was no saving it anymore. My theory is, you know, the Tea Party wave in 2010, and so in Delaware you have Mike Castle, right? This moderate mm. Republican had co-sponsored stem cell research bills. Co-sponsor he was pro-choice, pro-gun control. He had been governor, had been a congressman, was now running for the U.S. Senate. Direct lineage from Benjamin Franklin, which I don't know if a lot of people know. I mean, he's as like old line Republican, you know, Rockefeller Republicans it gets and loses to somebody in a primary who says has to do an TV ad saying that she's not a witch. That to me seems to be the moment where the Republican Party literally gave up on history, expertise, culture, you know, um, moderation. Everything. That's my theory, anyhow. You don't have that's to. an that's that's an interesting theory. Uh, my guess is there's a lot of moments like that we could probably pick. Uh, you're right. What you're getting at, but what yeah. you're getting at is very important. It's it's those. I can't believe that just happened. Moment, uh, and it's the follow up where you realize, oh, there's going to be a lot more of that, and uh, and and it's not much of a surprise to see that anymore. And. Um, you know, there's going to be a slate of books that are coming out now by former Republicans who are saying, how did we get to this place, um, which is interesting to see. But the real question is, will there be any pressure within the Republican Party to really change their ways? I'm not sure books will do it. I really think in the end, <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's only going to be a loss of, you know, immense magnitude. That well, that's what I was just going to ask. I was just going to ask you, Julian, I was going to say, okay, right. The books on how we get into it. How do we get out of this? And I, I, yeah, I mean, what, do, how do we beat Trumpism? How do we beat Gingrichism? Like, cause this is, this is just from studying democracies and history and you're a historian. 
and I don't want to scare people here, but can we get out of it? Yeah. Can you put depravity, political depravity can, back in the bottle? Can you have, and even more to the point, can you have a two-party state where one party is no longer a functioning party that believes in governing, but yeah. still has the kind of propaganda apparatus and loyalty you know, among large groups yeah. of people that don't pay close attention so that they can win a lot of elections? Like, can democracy survive that? It can. It's, it's, I mean, to the first question, it's not easy to move beyond this because it's deeply rooted, because we accept this isn't just a product of Trump. It means it doesn't really go away very easily. And so, right. you know, the only two paths I can see to get out of it, one would be a, a kind of a, the kind of election defeat we haven't seen since 1984 when Reagan beat Mondale. That's so severe the party starts saying we have to just change what we're doing and we're going to basically be a permanent minority. The second path are real institutional reforms that get to the root of some of these issues, whether it's, you know, how our congressional districts are drawn to how campaign finance works. Those are hard to really get into, into place. Can our democracy survive? I think it can. I'm an optimist. Uh, and I, it, it endured the Civil War. Uh, and, and so for me, that's always an important mark. But that doesn't mean it, it can't severely erode uh, and stay in place. And we're seeing that with the truth in you know, public debate, uh, the lack of truth. We're seeing the elimination and weakening of the right to vote in pretty dramatic ways. Those make our democracy very, very weak. It can still survive, but it's not what it should be. And I think these are serious concerns and uh, there's long-term costs to continuing to allow this erosion to happen. So I know you're a historian and not a futurist, but based on history, based on the fact that there seem to be two very, from for a long time now, irreconcilable cultures, there's more mini cultures within this country, a lot of them, but overall, I mean, could you see this country breaking up ever? I mean, not necessarily even in a, in a violent way, but in a way where there are people just finally like, look, it, we're, it, it's not going to happen. We're just not that into you anymore. Maybe we, I mean, <laughs> realist, I'm, I'm just, I'm wondering if you have thoughts on that, if you think that's just insane. Maybe. I, I don't think, I don't imagine that in the near future. I mean, there's still things that tie the country together outside of politics, uh, just the way the marketplace works and the way popular culture works. There's these odd elements of today where even though the politics are so bitter and siloed and divisive, we're all living the same kind of life, uh, regardless of what part of the country you're in. So many people are going to be shopping on Amazon or, you know, having watching the same television shows. We're more national than ever. That's the irony. Uh, a lot of the local has diminished, even though politically we are almost, you know, it feels like in Civil War territory. So I don't I don't know if uh, any kind of secession is on the way. I, I don't I don't see that. That's not one of the issues I worry about. I just worry about a, a permanent degradation of this political system to the point it's really hard to get back to to a better place. And we learn to live with mediocrity, dysfunction and a really, you know, deteriorated set of democratic uh, processes and institutions. Let's hope not. Um, yeah, and maybe, honestly, Cliff, you've talked about it too. It's getting rid of Fox News. I mean, I'm, uh, I'm, de- I'm only going to say this because I think nobody in my family listens to my podcast. You know, I'm now dealing with this crap with my mom, 90 years old, 
my nephew's getting married in Arizona in October. <clears throat> Originally, we were all going to go, of course, for the wedding. I'm told him I'm probably not going now because I don't, I just don't trust flying at this point. Um, mom, I was like, don't, and he already said, I'm not bringing grandma. He goes, I'm going to, he goes, I'm going to live the rest of my life knowing I killed my grandma. Well, other factions in the family have, who watch Fox news have been angling for my mom to go and have come up with also, Oh, well she can drive with my brother. And I'm like, well, okay. She's still going to then she be at a wedding. At Arizona at her age would be well, at her age, mind you with her legs. That's a good idea. Right. But also, also, she's going to still be at a wedding with 100 people. She's going to be staying at a hotel. I mean, like, you know, it's it's and I found out that my brother actually isn't driving back. So they said, mom can just take the plane back. So right. actually, actually, they were thinking of putting my 90 year old mom on a plane in the mm -hmm. fall when things come back, knowing what happened. And, and this is just about my, my, my mom. But I mean, I see this kind of shit having real world consequences in my own family where I mean, you know, th this is worthy of a major family schism. <laughs> the idea of, hey, you know, it's only mom. <laughs> what if we what if we kill her? And you're supposed to sit back and go, well, okay, I don't want to be too, you know, histrionic about the fact that they're trying to kill my mother. I just, it's... It's been one of the things I've talked about a lot. The impact. Here, but but like, I think like just, the... Yeah, go on, Cliff. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, I don't mean to cut you, but I mean, the fact that, that, you know, we essentially have allowed propaganda to rise of the kind that exists in authoritarian countries and, and hide behind, you know, the, the First Amendment and call itself news. And nobody still has given me a good answer on this, even though we had, you know, even Matt Gertz from Media Matters who we had on, which is, you know, there are, I mean, look, Germany has freedoms, but they ban Nazi symbolism. You know, the United Kingdom it has freedoms, but they also they also have strict laws when it comes to libel and, and that kind of thing about lying about public figures. You wouldn't have been able to say, Don, you know, we know for a fact that that Barack Obama was born in Kenya. They would have been held responsible for that. They ended up was it was it Fox? They kicked off of TV the airwaves in in the United Kingdom because it lied too much. And I do wonder at what point you First Amendment yourselves to death that yeah. all of these things were meant to be a balance all the amendments, all of our rights, and that we've moved to this extremist position where everything can claim the First Amendment, you know, and we, we've allowed propaganda to be pumped into the veins of vulnerable people, older people, lesser educated people. I don't mean that's obnoxious, but, you know, they're more susceptible to this. I mean, I know that, again, this isn't your area, you're a historian, but I mean, do you have any thoughts on what we can do about that? Well, I, I mean... I wonder if the pandemic, and we'll, we don't know how this pandemic unfolds, certainly the info we see now isn't good, whether it exposes so much of the problem that we've been talking about uh, because of a just total failure of leadership and government policy that leads to people dying, leads to you know parts of our economy just wrecked and civic institutions that are forever changed like schools. Um, I wonder if if some of that, you know, causes different kinds of conversations, even in communities that are much redder uh, politically and raises questions about our media ecosystem. And is this tolerable anymore to have so much, uh, you know, false information out there? I don't think anyone, you know, if, if this gets a lot worse and it can, no one's going to forget all those Fox newscasters mocking wearing a mask. Uh, and politicians doing the same. So, so I guess that's the other path. I wonder if, mm. if, if this ironically leads to some reversal of, of what you're saying, but, but I don't know. I, I would be, uh, 
getting ahead of myself to say this is going to change everything uh, because well, it's would... easy as we see it can stay exactly the same and that's part of what's been happening in these states that are flaring right now i would say if there's any evidence you know towards saying that maybe you have a point and maybe things could change first of all i mean obviously the fox talk radio demographic tends to be very old very white and you know people don't live forever um and younger generations obviously feel differently in large numbers. It's the reason why Black Lives Matter is now obviously such a is, a, is has a lot of popular support because even in rural areas you have younger folks. Who, you know, hell, you've got Kellyanne Conway's daughter is on live with Black, you know, is on on with Black Lives Matter supporting it. You know, so I mean, it may be that just Fox News getting pegged as racist is the death knell of Fox News, and they can't say the kinds of things they used to say i don't know but if there's you know and, yeah. and you see the reason why you, you see some evidence there also with the elderly i mean you know joe biden right now and every major poll has shifted the lead the republicans have held since 2004 or so among elderly voters and he's he has a lead now that could just be unique to trump but it also there seems to be some evidence that black lives matter made a difference in some of these so you know maybe there is reason to be optimistic there I don't know. We will. I mean, we'll see. Although I'm, I'm not sure a Biden victory uh, equates with changing the fundamentals that we've been discussing, because uh, all right. those fundamentals are in place, and and a Biden uh, as president is still going to face all of that. And and so the question is, how do you change the rest of it? How do you change the context if power actually shifts in November? And and that's a different and more difficult kind of conversation. Well, yeah, and I think what you said earlier, the type of win, you know, matters. I mean, if it's a blowout, not only does it make Republicans rethink what, you know, but when you see stuff like that article in the New York Times today that apparently Republicans' internal polling has them losing in Kansas. Oh um, <laughs> and ex- external polling we've seen, which which would sound like it's consistent with that Kansas finding, showed Biden up two in Missouri. Um, their internal polling had Biden up in Georgia. Their internal polling had him within a few points in Montana. I guess what I'm saying is it's not the point I'm not making is necessarily Biden versus Trump, but for people to, to break away from that Fox News mentality or, or for people to vote for Biden, they have to somewhat be breaking away from that mentality and thinking in a different way. And maybe that's hope, right, that they, it, that their minds will be more open in places where they haven't been before, among groups where they haven't been before. I don't know. I'm hoping. <laughs> That's right. I don't know. It's out. It's out of my realm. The predictive phase. Um, but uh, you know, I think we should always be a little bit sober in in just remembering how we got to this place and how there was so much space for a Donald Trump to be president and to retain his support in in huge parts of the electorate, even if those are shrinking. And just have that in mind and and remember yeah. that you know. On the January, if Biden wins and he's inaugurated, Fox News will be covering that inauguration. And and I just don't know how different that coverage is going to be. I guess we'll have to see. I think that's all we have. I, I do have to say something important mm-hmm. to folks, which is um, I've known uh, Julian. I haven't known Julian that long, but I've known his work for a long time. Uh, when I was in a, a history PhD program, we were reading Julian's books. I don't even know how many books you have out there, Julian, um, but there are a lot. Yes, I say that only to say that Julian is a brilliant historian, honestly, probably one of the best political historians alive. 
Um, if you want to know more about this stuff, which presumably you do because you're listening to this podcast and we're not sitting here talking about the San Francisco 49ers or John's cooking, uh, then you, hey. you, which I'm sure is great, John, it's just not a, a topic that we uh, go deeply into. Um, then you'll want to read Julian's pieces at CNN. You'll want to watch him on CNN. You'll want to go out and read his books. And most of all, for right now, you'll want to read Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich, The Fall of a Speaker, and The Rise of the New Republican Party. And I can read that straight off the book cover because I have it sitting here right in front of me, and I am reading it. Um, so I would really recommend all of you get Julian's book. You'll be more informed. Uh, you'll be a better activist or pundit or just someone who argues with your crazy uncle at the at the dinner table uh, just from having read this you'll be smarter so thank you for joining us julian thanks so much for having me and thanks for the kind words thanks julian absolutely